So up to this point in Job's story, in the first two chapters, Job has only spoken, and this is in the English language, Job has only spoken 55 words total. Okay, and I'm reading out of the English uh, standard version. And it seems as Job has not yet truly expressed his pain. Okay, remember, everything in, in chapter 1, everything is taken from him, including his 10 children are killed. And then in chapter 2, Satan comes and brings boils on his body and sickness in his body as well. Everything was taken from Job. And his wife actually tells him, curse God and die. And he has made it clear what he will not do. He will not blame God for his evil. He will not curse God. But he will bless God when he gives and when he takes away. He will receive good from God and in the same way receive the evil that he allows to come upon Job's life. If we go back to Job chapter 2, just those first, those, not the first few verses, but verses 11 through 13, those last few verses, we see Job's three friends come into the picture, these three new characters that come in, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they're a lot like Job. They're great men like Job. And verse 13 helps us see how they grieved with Job. Look at Job chapter 3, or I'm sorry, Job chapter 2, verse 13. It says, and they, being Job's friends, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So there's a few things that Job's friends do here that I want us to see. They sat with him on the ground. This is that nonverbal picture that from dust we came and to dust we will return. So they sit with Job on the ground. And then they sit with him a completed number of days, uh, seven days and seven nights they sit with Job. And they do not speak a word. They don't say anything to Job. They recognized how immense his suffering really was. And when Job's friends come into the story, you have to remember, they don't have any context other than they know that their friend is suffering greatly. Remember, we get a, a very specific view that we know what's going on in Job's life, and we also get this picture of what's happening in the heavenly places. When Satan comes to God and they have this conversation, we get this very specific view, but Job and his friends do not. So they come in kind of in the middle of this story. This is what, uh, what filmmakers call in media res, or in the midst of things. That's Latin for in the midst of things, okay? And we're going to need to know that, why, why that here in just a, a few minutes. So Job's three friends are dropped in the middle of this timeline, in the middle of these happenings to Job, and they feel deeply for their friend. Yet they only have the context that's given to them when they are given the word about Job's situation. At the end of verse 13, we get another nonverbal, this time by Job's friends. The very act of them sitting with him on the ground and not saying a word for so long is like mourning with someone before they die as if they had already died. Okay, that's what Job's friends are doing. By them not saying anything to him, by them sitting on the ground with him, by them not saying comforting words or anything like that, or trying to put their arm around Job, what they're doing is, is like they've walked into a funeral and that person has not died yet. That's what they're doing. That's the nonverbal that they're giving us. This is how enormous 
this moment was and how unbearable the grief felt. It's palpable with tension. There's, you could cut the tension with the knife. Have you ever heard that? That's how thick this tension was in that moment. But we as the audience, we are well informed. And the perspective, that, with the perspective to Job's suffering that not even Job gets, okay? I want to make this clear. If you don't walk away with anything else, walk away with this. God, in his sovereign plan, allows Job to suffer greatly. That's the main idea of Job. That God in his sovereign plan allowed Job to suffer greatly. So much like a story we might see on TV, when much suffering and evil comes upon a family, you expect for someone to make a statement. You expect for the father to walk out or for the mother to walk out, somebody to make a statement. As the media gathers and they, they bring their microphones and their recording devices around, and maybe it's in front of the, the, that family's house or in front of the police station. This is the, the picture that, that Job chapter 2 and Job chapter 3 are giving us. Job steps up to the media's platform in chapter 3. So let's lean in and let's listen to what Job has to say. So if you look at the beginning of Job chapter 3 in the title, mine has a title there. It says, Job laments his birth. And then we go into Job chapter 3, okay? And we begin by a deep dive in dark and dense Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, excuse me. So we need to understand what Job is trying to communicate, okay? I'm sure I could ask you here in this place if, if poetry actually communicates to you well. I am a person that likes, I like poetry. I don't understand all poetry, but I like poetry, okay? I like poetic songs, and I like to read poems and things like that. My wife, on the other hand, does not like poetry. She likes it black and white. Tell me what you're saying, Ricky, okay? You don't have to write it out in poetry, okay? And I was just like, can I go out with my friends? That's all I was going to say, okay? Well, why don't you just ask, <laughs> okay? But Job, in uh, Job chapter 3, we start this deep dive. Like, we're like coming up, coming up on the 15-foot side of the pool, and we're diving headlong into deep and dark, dense Hebrew poetry, okay? And here's all that poetry is, okay? If you're not a poetry person, this is all it is. is it, poetry is using imagery to communicate feeling. That's what poetry is, okay? You're, you, you're trying to communicate imagery by, uh, by how you feel, okay? That's, that's what poetry is, okay? So I want to answer the question, what is lament? What does it mean for Job to lament the day of his birth? If you look in the Oxford Dictionary, it says a passionate expression, usually with words, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. That's what lament is, okay? But here at Redeemer, we don't want to just leave that definition there with the Oxford Dictionary. We want to define it biblically. We want to look to the scriptures. What does the Bible say about lament, okay? And it would take some time, but we can certainly look to the scriptures to find lament scattered throughout the scriptures. If you look at the book of Jeremiah, you don't have to turn there, but the, the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, okay? And this book, the, Jeremiah is full of lament, okay? There's a lot of really, really tough things happening to the people of Israel in the book of Jeremiah. And if you look at the book right after Jeremiah, it's a book called Lamentations, okay? That means that the people were lamenting in this book, 
okay? And I actually want to read a few verses out of this, okay? Lamentations, if you'll turn there, it's in the Old Testament. Lamentations chapter 3, and it should be up on the screen for you. Lamentations, let me find it. Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 20, says this. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. I think I read one verse too long. But even as we read through it, just like the poetry in Job, the question has to be, what are these laments, what, are these sad, what is this sad poetry pointing me to? One word, hope. That's what lament points us to, is, is this deep, heartfelt grief uh, expression of sorrow that's pointing me that's making me long for, like, like you would when you're really, really thirsty and you need a glass of water. That's what it's making me long for and hope. That's what a lament is making us long for. Lament is a prayer to the God we hope in that is filled with questions, frustration, sadness, grief, yet it's anchored in hope. This is what you would say, this is painful. This moment right now in my life is painful, but things will not stay this way. Look at Psalm 142. I think Psalm 142 does a really good job of, of clarifying what lament is or defining it for, for us biblically. Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2. The Psalter says, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. That's what a lament, if you want to circle and highlight that, that's what a lament is. That it's, it's this expression of deep grief and sorrow that's anchored in hope. A prayer sowed in tears, wrapped in pain and suffering, and laid at the feet of the king who loves and cares for us is lament. Okay. Now we've, we've talked plenty about what lament is. Let's look at Job chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. So I want us to stop on verse 1, and, and, and I, want you to, I want you to see this, okay? What the author of Job is trying to help us see is that when Job opens his mouth, he's going to say something meaningful. Okay, so that means we need to tune in and really listen to what Job is going to say. Even if you don't like poetry, okay, even if you like it black and white, you need to listen and pay attention, specific attention to what Job is saying because he's stepping up to the platform again. He's stepping up to the media's platform so that he can speak. So what we kind of expect for Job to say is, why God? Why would you allow all of this suffering. But what we get instead 
in chapter 3 is, why was I even born? Let's read a few verses, starting in verse 2. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let the day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, the night he was born, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. You didn't know you were going to come to Redeemer and get depressed today, did you? But we need to be clear about what Job is saying here. So starting in verse 2, what is Job saying? He wishes, to, just to put it simply, Job wishes with all this suffering, all the immensity of the suffering that's happening to Job's life and his wife too, he wishes he was never born. Look at verse 6, Job chapter 3 verse 6. That night, the night he was born, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. I used to work with a lady who she would literally send us emails and text messages throughout the year reminding us how many days it was until her birthday so we could celebrate her appropriately, okay? And here, Job is actually sending us text messages and emails saying, don't celebrate my birthday. I don't want you to celebrate my birthday. That's what verse 6 is saying, is he is not excited about his birthday, okay? That's usually the opposite. Look at, let's go down to verse 8. Let those who curse it curse the day who were ready to rouse up Leviathan, okay? So this, this word, Leviathan, we need, to, we need to pay special attention to this word Leviathan, okay? Because we're going to talk about more about it in, in the chapters that follow, in chapter 41. So this is a creature that is somewhat like a dragon mixed with a dinosaur, okay? It actually breathes fire, this Leviathan-type creature, okay? And it's certainly one, a creature that you do not want to trifle with. Job wants this creature to be awakened from its sleep and for it to take out creation before his birth so he wouldn't even come to existence. That's what he wants Leviathan to do. He wants this massive dragon-type character to come into the picture and to take out creation so that he no longer has to live or come into existence. Then go to verse 11. It says, why did I not die at my birth? Come out from the womb and expire. This verse 11 comes in like a sucker punch. When you're already staggered by some of the language that, that Job is using here, can you imagine, okay, think about this for a minute. Look at me for just a minute. Can you imagine being Job's mother and reading this? It comes in like a sucker punch. And for his, his parents to be reading this thinking, Job, why would you say such a thing? Why did I not just die at birth? And then verses 13 through 19. I want to read these for us. For then I would, have, I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who had filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light? 
There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at, at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Here's what Job is saying in these few verses that I just read. Job is saying that death does not play favorites. Death does not have some scale to weigh whether you're rich or poor. Death comes and awaits us all. So here's, let me, let me take a step back from this and let me just say this. Here's one of my jobs as a pastor is to prepare not only myself but my congregation for death. And not in a morose way, not in one that I'm trying to keep you constantly in fear of death. But is to remind to remind you of the reality of life and death. If the Lord Jesus tarries any longer, death is coming for us all. It awaits us all. No matter how many degree, college degrees you have or don't have, the size of your house or your 401k, the amount of friends you might have on social media, unless the Lord tarries any longer, death awaits us all. And here I want to make this connection for us. The question is for you this morning. Is death a doorway to your best life? Or is death a doorway to your worst life? Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, okay? As, as the pastor of Redeemer, this is not your best life. You're either awaiting your best life or you're awaiting the worst. Is death merely a doorway to eternity in the presence of King Jesus, the one who will truly satisfy all the longings of your heart, the one who came and lived perfectly in your place, who died a substitutionary death in your place, and who defeated death after three days, resurrecting from the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father where he prays for us night and day. Is death a doorway to eternity with King Jesus? Or is death a doorway to punishment and wrath forever? Let's read these last few verses. Job chapter 3, verses 20 through 26. I'm not going to read all of these. I'm going to start with the first three. It says, Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasure, treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom light, whom God, I'm sorry, whom God has hedged in? I want to look at those first few verses. Why is light given? Job asks this question a couple of times. Job begins these two verses by wondering why someone would be born under such an amount of, of, of terrible suffering, some extreme suffering. Why would light be given? Then look at verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Okay, that word hedged, look at that word for just a minute. Highlight that word, circle that word, underline that word, hedged. And then turn back to Job chapter 1, verse 10. And this is Satan speaking here. Job chapter 1, verse 10. Have you not put a what? A hedge. 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Okay, this is what I want us to see. This is what the author is trying to help us see. Satan in chapter 1 is saying, have you not hedged him in with prosperity? Have you not hedged him in with your own protection? Well, that's why he worships you. That's why he loves you. That's why he's blameless because you've hedged him in. It's like a fence that's around Job. And then in chapter 3 in Job's lament, he speaks of another hedging here, or another fence that's around him. At first, it's prosperity that hedges him in, and secondly, it's suffering that has hedged him in. Look at me for just a moment. God is doing the hedging in both chapters. God is hedging him in with prosperity. God removes that hedge and hedges him in with suffering. And both, both of these scenarios are by the gracious hand of God. Both of them. And you're like, Ricky, but, but one seems better than the other. In our minds and our hearts, yes, it does. But for God to apply the rod of discipline this way to Job is a very loving act. For him to remove everything, even his ten children, to remove those things. Even for his wife to say, curse God and die. For God to hedge Job in with suffering is a loving act that God does for his people. Because in both scenarios, he is protecting us from something. Do you see that? Do you make that connection? That God is hedging Job in here with prosperity removes that and hedges him in with suffering. And I think Romans 8.28 gives us some clarity when we speak about this hedging that's taken place. Some of you might know this by memory. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. So both hedgings work together for what? For good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You see how much depth there is to just this one verse here? That it's, it's, not, it's not right to just use it as a one-off verse saying like, well, I'll just trust God in that. No, it's saying that God loves his people so much that he will hedge them in both with prosperity and with suffering. He will do it. And he has his purposes and why he does it. Then the end of Job chapter 3, the last three verses. Look at verse 24. For my sighing, okay, for those of you who have kids, when you tell your kids to do something, what do they do? (sighs) That sigh, that deep sigh, okay? That's what Job is saying here. He's continually groaning loudly. In verse 24. And then in verse 25. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. And this is not, Job is not speaking of death here. Actually, he wishes death would come. Job fears that this, that he does not know when this suffering will end. And Job doesn't have this, this specific view that we have as an audience. He doesn't know when his suffering will end. That's the fear that Job has in verse 25. 
And then verse 26, Job speaks of the fact that he cannot find comfort in anything. He just wants to be heard, that he cannot even sleep. And he points to the fact that he can almost sense that his three three friends are just awaiting to question him. And the tension is mounting. So as we look to the New Testament, we're in the Old Testament with Job. If we look to the Old, to the New Testament, excuse me, who else can we see who laments? Turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out the very first verse of Psalm 22, which the Jewish people surrounding the cross that day would have known was both prophetic and a lament. It was pointing them to something. Jesus does not say, just like Job, what we would think he would say. His cry of dereliction from the cross is one of forsakenness. He is completely alone. Job had friends around him. Jesus was despised and rejected and completely forsaken. Jesus' question is not because he doesn't know why he is forsaken. He says this to fulfill the prophecy that was given about his own life. The people in that day, look, look at me for just a moment. The people in that day, when Jesus was crying that out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Jewish people in that day would have been in awe of the fact that Jesus cried this out. Not because they didn't think he, he knew or didn't know why he was being forsaken, but because they knew what the prophetic Uh, psalms were saying about the coming Messiah. And this does not undo the divine trinity in any way. Jesus and the Father are still one, as he speaks of in John 17. But Jesus must be forsaken so that we can be accepted. Look at me. Jesus must be forsaken so that we can be accepted. By God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake, this is for our sake as the people of God, for our sake, he made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, who was perfect in every way, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel in one verse. He who knew no sin, he who was perfectly righteous in every way, became sin. This does not mean that he sinned. It means that he became sin. This is what we call imputed righteousness. The beautiful exchange that happens on the cross between the life of the believer and Christ Jesus himself is that he takes our sin, makes it He takes our sin, makes it his responsibility, and removes his code of righteousness and places it on us. They're making this glorious exchange. This is what happens at the cross. This is why Jesus had to be forsaken so that we 
could be accepted. And the lie that so many people believe is that once you become a Christian, things get easier. I'm sure I could ask you, if you're a Christian in this place, how many of you became a Christian and your life just got easier? It's not the truth. That's not what Christianity offers us. Christianity does offer us sin. Uh, it does offer us forgiveness of sin, not sin. It offers you freedom from trying to save yourself. It offers you freedom from sin and satisfaction in God. It offers you Christ as your supreme treasure so we, so we can look to him in the midst of the most tragic calamities in life and we can say with a confidence no one can shake that God's grace is enough. So we live on this timeline of the already and the not yet. Sin has been dealt with on the cross, but we still see the effects of sin. We're living in the middle of it right now with COVID. We're seeing the effects of sin. Some of you are experiencing it in your own life right now. Sin has been dealt with at the cross and one day will be dealt with forever. We live on this timeline, this part of the timeline of eternity that we call in media res or in the midst of things. There's this tension for us that we have this longing deep inside of, of us for things to be made right. Look at Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read a few verses for us. Romans 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider, Paul says here, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Do you hear all that language that Paul is using in Romans? There's this longing that we have. This is the perfect picture of a lament that we're bringing our complaint before God. And we're saying, God, the only person we can bring this to is you. Because my hope is in you and your grace is enough. I want to end with this idea. There are so many times that people come to church and their life is falling down around them. And they come into a very happy, clappy church. And we're not given time to grieve. We're not given moments in the worship service to say, this is painful. This is who we want to be at Redeemer. Yes, we want to sing songs that are joyful. Yes, we want to sing songs that, that are upbeat and that, that excite us about God. But we also want to be sensitive to that. We don't know what people's weeks look like. We don't know what yesterday looked like for people in this room. So we need moments in our service 
where we say, this is painful. And here in just a few moments, we're going to take communion. And then after communion, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to lead us through a prayer of lament. Okay? And you're going to have a moment to respond in that prayer of lament. That doesn't mean you have to come up here or raise your hand or anything like that. But I want you to participate in this prayer of lament. Okay? I want to give you words to say that are deep and heartfelt. But I want to ask you this. Will there be an end to your lament? If you're not in Christ this morning, I have to tell you this. This is the reality of, of, of this moment. If you are not in Christ, if you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, your lament will be forever with no hope. But if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have made a profession of faith, and you say, I trust you with my life. I trust you because you have saved me, and you've given me a new heart. You've given me a new nature. There will be an end to your lament. The Lord Jesus will come and wipe away every tear from every eye and make all things right. There will be an end to your lament. So I want to offer you, I want to invite us into this this morning. If you're not in Christ, place your faith in the Lord Jesus this morning. There's nothing, there's nothing special to do. There's no prayer that you can pray that, that's this special prayer that's going to manipulate God into saving you. It's you coming and saying, God, save me. God, save me. I place my faith in you. I turn from my sin and I look to the Lord Jesus who can save. And if you are in Christ this morning, can we give him thanks when we worship here in just a moment? Can we give him thanks that our lament will come to an end? Let's pray.